because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today, we are pleased to have Stephen Smoot joining us. Thanks for being on, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So to give us a little bit of kind of an idea of who you are, could you tell us a little bit about um, your story in terms of, yeah, how you first got involved in apologetics and like where that passion comes from and kind of how that's led to where you're at right now? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So in some ways, I had a pretty typical LDS upbringing. Uh, with a name like Smoot, you can probably guess correctly that I uh, come from a multi-generational Latter-day Saint family, uh, going all the way back to the earliest days of the church with uh, Abraham O. Smoot. Uh, and so in, in some ways, I grew up as sort of a typical uh, LDS kid uh, in the suburbs of Salt Lake City in a you know middle-class LDS family. Uh, but in some other ways, uh, I had an atypical uh, upbringing as a member of the church. So uh, when I was a young teenager, I think probably around 14 years old uh, or thereabouts, uh, my father uh, decided to introduce me to the, we'll call it the colorful, wonderful world of anti-Mormonism. And uh, he, he did this out of no uh, malicious intent by any means. Uh, rather, uh, he wanted to guide me through what were some of the uh, issues that were out there and some of the criticisms that people have, have raised against the church as a way to sort of inoculate me. That's the metaphor that's used all the time. I think it's uh, an appropriate metaphor. Uh, he wanted to sort of, you know, introduce the deadly pathogens in my system just enough where I could build up an immunity to them and uh, my body could, uh, or I guess in this case, my intellect and my spirit could, could uh, respond to them uh, uh, appropriately. So uh, he, he introduced me to some, to some critical works of the church, uh, but at the same time that he did that, he would sort of guide me through the issues and he would introduce me to some apologetic writings uh, from the likes of, say, uh, Hugh Nibley uh, and others. So uh, I was kind of dunked into the deep end of the pool as a kid, uh, kind of uh, kind of atypical from most people in that sense. Um, but I found it absolutely fascinating, uh, the, the world of Latter-day Saint history, uh, Latter-day Saint scripture, um, but also especially the ancient world. Uh, like I mentioned, my dad had me, you know, reading Hugh Nibley as a teenager. And kind of like the Star Wars universe, I discovered this giant, awesome galaxy of coolness that is the ancient world, that is the ancient Near East, uh, that Hugh Nibley kind of unlocked for me, ancient Egypt and ancient Israel and uh, ancient Mesopotamia, that whole ancient part of the world. Um, but not just that, it also introduced me to how this uh, ties in with our Latter-day Saint faith tradition, with books like the Book of Mormon uh, and the Pearl of Great Price. So uh, because of that, when it came time for me to go to a university, I decided to go to Brigham Young University where I pursued my uh, undergraduate studies in ancient Near Eastern studies, uh, focusing on the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. Um, after I, I finished my degree at BYU, uh, I went to work for an organization called Book of Mormon Central for a few years, which uh, perhaps some of your listeners have heard of. 
Uh, Book of Mormon Central is a, a nonprofit research organization, uh, specifically uh, dedicated to doing Book of Mormon research, as you could probably guess from the name. Uh, and uh, after spending some time there, I was accepted into a, a graduate program at the University of Toronto, where I uh, studied, uh, again, Near and Middle Eastern civilizations or ancient Near Eastern civilizations. Um, but uh, this time in my master's program, I studied uh, Egyptology, uh, became my, my emphasis. And so with one foot in the Hebrew Bible from my undergraduate days at BYU and one foot in Egyptology from the University of Toronto, uh, I decided to sort of wed the two disciplines together, and I entered a PhD program at the Catholic University of America, which I'm in right now, uh, in the field of Semitic and Egyptian languages and literature, which is what I currently study. Uh, and so um, I've had this sort of dual interest in both uh, the world of the Bible, uh, specifically the Hebrew Bible, um, and the uh, sort of cognate environmental cultures of Egypt and Mesopotamia, but especially Egypt. Um, and I've also had another foot. I've also been very interested in Latter-day Saint scripture and history and theology, both from my upbringing as a Latter-day Saint, uh, but also just from my intellectual and academic interests. And uh, I, I guess I could say that, that sort of is what introduced me into this bigger world of uh, not just Latter-day Saint scripture, but specifically the, uh, the historical or contextual background to Latter-day Saint scripture. Um, and I guess I could just say on top of that to sort of round things out a little bit about how I sort of approach these issues or this sort of topic. So uh, there's kind of these two worlds that I try to merge together. There's uh, just sort of the broader world of the ancient Near East, which I want to understand as best I can through the tools of, of mainstream academic scholarship. Uh, but once I have a pretty firm, or at least what I think is a pretty firm grasp and understanding of the world of the ancient Near East, I want to, to take that knowledge and uh, take the next step besides just understanding it in its own right. I want to see how can I use this knowledge to make sense of uh, my Latter-day Saint faith tradition. Uh, and so, as I mentioned before, I, I kind of, you know, migrate through these two different spheres or these two different worlds mainstream secular uh, academic work on the ancient Near East, which I pursue, uh, but also as a side passion, I want to uh, make sense of my own faith tradition and the scriptures of my faith tradition. And so I hope that's kind of a, a snapshot overview of my interests uh, in this topic and my uh, experience in this, in this field. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great background you shared, and we're excited to um, hear your your insights and your perspectives on these things. Um, so one of like the general kind of the topic I wanted to, I wanted to discuss during this interview um, is the Pearl of Great Price. Um, and I know this is a book of scripture that um, at times can be kind of controversial for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's a book of scripture that a lot of us Latter Day Saints definitely were not as familiar um, with it as I think we should be because it's an amazing book. Um, so I want to kind of just ask you a few questions about that and get your thoughts. Um, so to start, to start us off, could you give us a brief overview um, of like the history and the production of some of these books in the Pearl of Great Price? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe what I'll do uh, before I break down the different components in the Pearl of Great Price is just give an overview of, of the book itself. 
Uh, yeah, do that. That's great. I, I, I say this with great love and affection when I say that the Pearl of Great Price is like a Frankenstein's monster of a book of scripture, uh, because you have these disparate parts that have kind of been sewn together uh, into this, you know, bigger organism. Uh, and so when you're approaching the Pearl of Great Price, I at least find it helpful to understand both how we got it as a whole and also how we got the individual books uh, within the Pearl of Great Price. So uh, I guess we can just start with a, with a more broader overview. So uh, in 1851, uh, Elder Franklin D. Richards uh, was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he was also the president of the British Mission. And he uh, said in the church's newspaper at the time, the, the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star, how he kept getting, uh, quote, repeated solicitations of several friends of the publisher who are desirous to be put in possession of the very important articles contained therein, end quote, meaning of the, of the paper, the Millennial Star. So he had this demand by many, both members and non-members, to have greater access to uh, Joseph Smith's revelations and writings that were being published in the Millennial Star, the church's paper. And so Elder Richards had the, I believe, inspired idea to compile what were what he deemed to be perhaps the most important or the most relevant of Joseph Smith's uh, prophetic writings into a single uh, accessible volume. So that that way you didn't have to keep scouring through the individual issues of the paper, you could just have them in one handy book. So uh, in, uh, in July of 1851, he published uh, what we now know as the Pearl Grey Price. The, obviously, uh, the name uh, he, he took from uh, Jesus' parable, which is quite appropriate since, you know, of course, in the parable, it's about a man who finds this nice, beautiful, expensive pearl, and he sells everything to get it uh, because of how much he values it. And Jesus likens it to the kingdom of heaven and Elder Richard's. I guess, sort of reappropriated or re-likened it to the, the teachings of the restoration that we get through the prophet Joseph Smith. So the content that was selected by Elder Richards for the first edition of the Pearl Grey Price are actually different than uh, the content we have in it today. So uh, we have, of course, today, uh, the Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith Matthew, Joseph Smith History, and the Articles of Faith. Uh, those were all in the first edition of the Pearl of Grey Price, uh, but there were um, other texts that were included that aren't in there today. So for example, Elder Richards included extracts of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and he also had a poem composed by a church member named John Jakes, which is what we now know as the hymn, Oh Say What is Truth. So uh, it's sort of this hodgepodge of content that he thought would be important for members to have easy access to. Uh, well, predictably, uh, the, the Pearl Great Price was sort of a, a smash hit amongst the British Latter-day Saints. And as they were bringing it over with them into the United States and specifically to Utah, uh, popularity and demand for the Pearl of Great Price increased, so much so that in 1878, uh, Elder Orson Pratt of the Quorum of the Twelve um, and other apostles, including Elder Richards, produced a second edition, uh, now known as the Salt Lake edition of the Pearl of Great Price in that year, uh, where they made significant revisions uh, both to the content of the Pearl of Great Price as well as the structure of some of the books in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, so, for example, uh, they included what is now section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the revelation on marriage. Uh, not surprisingly, in 1878, when the church was openly practicing plural marriage, they thought it was important to have a, a, a sort of script, uh, not quite scriptural yet, but sort of repository for where they could put this important revelation of Joseph Smith. So they put it in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, two years after that, uh, at the General Conference of the Church on Sunday, October 10th, 
1880 is when uh, President George Q. Cannon, the first council and the first presidency at the time, uh, proposed before uh, the saints assembled at the general conference that the Pro of Great Price be sustained as scripture. And uh, that was uh, accepted unanimously by, by common consent of the members of the church at the conference. And so the Pro of Great Price became scripture um, on that day. So uh, for those keeping track at home, we started out in 1851, and it's not until 1880. So what is that, 29 years uh, that it took for, for the Pro of Great Price to go from this really important book of Joseph Smith's teachings to uh, now it's going to be part of the canon. Uh, after it was canonized, it went through uh, basically three more major editions. Um, the first one was in 1902 that was prepared by a fellow who you may know. His name is James E. Talmadge. You may have heard his name before. Uh, James E. Talmadge, who actually at the time was not yet an apostle, uh, but he was tapped to, uh, to do a new edition of it. And we can thank uh, James E. Talmadge, who of course be later became Elder Talmadge. We can thank him for giving us the current chapters and versification system that the Pearl of Great Price has today. Uh, so uh, we can thank Elder Talmadge for that. Uh, in 1921, there was another edition done also by Elder Talmadge, now Elder Talmadge, who now is part of the Quorum of the Twelve. And uh, he, he marked them off into double columns uh, and they adjusted some punctuation and things like that. Uh, and that 1921 edition is basically the edition that we have today with, with some changes. Um, again, Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith, Matthew, Joseph Smith History, Articles of Faith. Um, interestingly, in uh, 1976, on April 3rd, 1976, at the General Conference, uh, there were two items added to the Pro of Great Price that were later moved to the Doctrine and Covenants. Those are sections 137 and 138 of, of the Doctrine and Covenants. So those were originally put in the Pro of Great Price, but then uh, about three years later, they were moved to the, to the DNC. And the current edition that we have now that, that most of our listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with uh, was uh, produced in 1981 with some revisions in 2013. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I think you could say the 1921 edition is basically the edition that we've been using, uh, well, for 100 years now, I guess it's been, right? Uh, so kind of a real roughshod kind of overview, but I hope that gets a sense of uh, roughly the history of the Pearl of Great Price um, specifically. Uh, and then uh, we could, you know, get into some of the more books if we'd like, unless if there's any questions or pointers you have that you think uh, would be good for our listeners. I don't want to filibuster here. I feel kind of no. bad to do that. <laughs> no, I think that was great. I think that was a great explanation of where it came from. Um, so yeah, maybe from there, we can kind of go over some of these different books, maybe starting with the book of Moses. So yeah, the book of Moses, what is it? And where did that come from? Right. Okay. So um, the book of Moses is essentially the first six chapters of Joseph Smith's uh, inspired translation or revision of the King James Bible, what we now today call the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, but what he and his contemporaries called the, the quote, the new translation of the Bible. So uh, it, right after the church is organized in April of 1830, a month later in June of 1830, uh, Joseph Smith receives what he calls, what's called at the top of the manuscript, a revelation, a revelation to Joseph the seer, right? Uh, this is what we now know as Moses chapter one, this uh, remarkable text of Moses up on a high mountain who has visions of God, who appears to him and shows him uh, creation and, and uh, humanity and so forth. 
so he receives this revelation in June of 1830. Uh, this kind of kicks off Joseph Smith's larger project to translate or revise the Bible, um, which he will, uh, so, so the portion uh, that's in our Pearl of Great Price now of the Book of Moses uh, was uh, revealed or translated by Joseph Smith between uh, June of 1830 and February of 1831. Uh, and at, at, he did more, I should say, than, than just what we have in the Probate Price. He, he, re, he made additional revisions. Uh, but the reason we have, probably the reason it seems why we have what we have is because that's what Elder Richards had uh, at, at his disposal when he uh, was compiling the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, because uh, there, there's additional material that Joseph Smith, you know, reveals or translates in the JST, uh, but this is the stuff that Elder Richards had immediately on hand. So this is what gets published in the Book of Moses. So um, basically, the Book of Moses, to put it simply, is uh, the first sort of uh, prophetic outpouring of what we now call the JST. And uh, if you were to uh, go pick up a copy of the what's called the inspired version of the Bible that's published by the Community of Christ, formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if you were to pick up their edition of the, the inspired version of the Bible and you were to compare it with your Pearl of Great Price, uh, you'd see that they're basically the same since, as I mentioned, the first six chapters of the JST are, is our Book of Moses. So uh, in, in a nutshell, that's where we get the, the Book of Moses from. Um, the Book of Abraham, uh, many of your listeners are, are probably aware, uh, is associated with the Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith received in the summer of 1835, in July of 1835. Uh, Joseph Smith produced what he called a translation of these papyri uh, and published the text of the translation as the Book of Abraham uh, beginning in March of 1842 in the church's newspaper, The Times and Seasons. Uh, what's, what's unique about the Book of Abraham, of course, as everybody loves and knows, is it's our only book of scripture that has pictures with it. Uh, it has uh, three facsimiles that, that accompany it. Uh, these are images uh, that were taken from the papyri that Joseph Smith uh, received in the summer of 1835, and Joseph Smith gave uh, explanations to these uh, three facsimiles, and they, ha they have accompanied the, the text of the Book of Abraham in every edition of the Pearl of Great Price since 1851. Uh, it's kind of been one of the anchor books, uh, if you will, of the Pearl of Great Price is the Book of Abraham and the, the three facsimiles. Um, after uh, the Book of Abraham comes Joseph Smith Matthew which uh, just like the book of Moses, Joseph Smith Matthew is a part of Joseph Smith's uh, new translation or revision of the Bible. Um, in March of 1831, Joseph Smith received uh, a revelation that is now section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and in it, uh, the Lord says that he will uh, plainly show unto uh, his disciples uh, basically what he meant with the discourse on the Mount of Olives as recorded uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 24. So uh, immediately after he receives this revelation on March 7th of 1831, the day after March 8th, 1831, is when he begins translating the New Testament. So he left off from the Old Testament, jumped to the New Testament, and uh, shortly after this, he would obviously, Matthew is the first uh, gospel in the New Testament, so he would have shortly thereafter would have encountered Matthew chapter 24, which has Jesus's famous uh, Olivet Discourse or Discourse on the Mount of Olives. Um, and uh, Joseph Smith Matthew uh, revises and expands on what Jesus taught uh, during the, or on the Mount of Olives at that time. 
And uh, the, the, the fancy word that scholars use to describe what this text has is called eschatology. It's an eschatological text, meaning it is a text that involves predictions of the end of the world and the final judgment, right? Uh, so, so Joseph Smith Matthew is engaging with Jesus' Olivet Discourse on the end of days, and it is going to, in part, expand and rearrange the, the content of what's in the KJV Matthew in the Bible, uh, and it's going to reapply it and sort of uh, recontextualize it to make it much more clear in, in many places, uh, you know, what, what, what things belong to the first century, Jesus' time, what things belong to the end of days or the latter days, right? It's not always clear in the biblical text, and uh, Joseph Smith Matthew, one of the big things it does is it uh, sort of brings that out more. Uh, more in relief. Uh, after Joseph Smith Matthew, we have Joseph Smith history. Uh, this comes from the, uh, the history that Joseph Smith wrote beginning um, in the spring of 1838. Um, and uh, it was uh, first recorded or began to be composed in 1838, but it wasn't published until 1842, actually around uh, precisely the same time as the Book of Abraham uh, was being published. Uh, Joseph Smith's history, his 1338 history was being published. Um, and uh, this, obviously, this uh, history is significant because it contains basically the fullest, most drawn out account of Joseph Smith's first vision, the recovery of the Book of Mormon, uh, the restoration of the priesthood, and other foundational um, events of the restoration. So uh, this wasn't the only history that Joseph Smith composed or commissioned in his lifetime. There were others. Um, including, we'll see in the Articles of Faith in just a minute, there were others he did, but this is the canonical history um, precisely, well, I mean, obviously because it's in the canon, but also because it seems that this is the history that Joseph Smith intended to be sort of his authoritative autobiography, right? His authoritative history, um, uh, which also explains why he made efforts to publish it in his lifetime and why it was published over in England as well, right? So when you read Joseph Smith history, uh, this is Joseph Smith's 1838 history. That's kind of the, the sum of it there. Uh, and then finally, um, we have the Articles of Faith. Uh, the Articles of Faith come from uh, Joseph Smith, what, what we call now the Wentworth Letter, Joseph Smith's Wentworth Letter. Uh, he wrote this uh, brief history to a Chicago journalist named John Wentworth, who asked Joseph Smith to write something for his uh, buddy named George Barstow, who was writing a history of the state of New Hampshire. Well, Joseph Smith and the Smith family lived in New Hampshire for a while. And so this Barstow fellow thought, hey, here's a good idea. I'll uh, ask the Mormons out there in Nauvoo, Illinois, what's going on here with Joe Smith and in in his history of New Hampshire. So, uh, so uh, this is where Joseph Smith gets this request from. And uh, he decides to write this history. It gets it. It seems that um, that Wentworth never publishes it. Uh, Barstow never publishes it in his history, assuming he ever got a copy of it. Wentworth doesn't, it seems, never publishes it. Uh, but Joseph Smith publishes it uh, in March of 1842 uh, as an editorial that's called uh, Church History, is what he calls it. Um, and after giving a history of the church, a very sort of brief sketch of the church, including his first vision, including recovering the Book of Mormon, uh, Joseph Smith ends with these statements of belief saying, you know, we believe, we believe, we believe it, you know, as, as we well know. Um, so that's where the Articles of Faith come from. What's ironic about the Articles of Faith, though, uh, Ryan, is that uh, at the beginning of the editorial, uh, Joseph Smith specifically said, uh, please publish this in full and please don't leave anything out. 
And what's ironic is that when we canonized the Articles of Faith, that's the only part of the Wentworth letter that we canonized and we left the rest of it out. Uh, so I just think that's uh, uh, somewhat humorous there, right? Uh, but that's fine. The Articles of Faith on their own, uh, uh, they stand just fine and they're, they're certainly important in that way. So uh, again, I know we're cruising through a lot of different things here, uh, but hopefully that sort of orients uh, our, our listeners to the individual books uh, within the Pearl of Great Price. Yeah, that's that's a great overview. That's funny that Joseph specifically told him to um, put the whole thing in, but they only put that small part. So maybe he's rolling over in his grave right now about yes, that. Yes, but... that's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I guess a quick question about relating to like Mo- the book of Moses as well as Joseph Smith Matthew. Um, in terms of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, um, what do we know about that? I don't know if he was like, did he use um, a seer stone or is it like, was he seeing um, like, a, like a picture of the Bible per se that had the revisions made? Like, what do we know about that? Maybe we don't know that much, but I'm, I'm just curious. That's a great question. Um, on, on the one hand, we know quite a bit behind uh, what we call the JST now, uh, thanks to the dedicated work of many different scholars for at least the last, oh, 60 something years now. Um, but on the other hand, there are still, of course, uh, gaps in our knowledge and things we, we don't fully know. Um, but w- what I can say that we do know pretty firmly um, is, is the following. So um, Joseph Smith calls this a translation, but it's not necessarily a translation as you and I may think of it. Uh, so when I translate the Bible, uh, I, I translate the Bible basically every day uh, because I'm studying the Bible uh, in a PhD program. Uh, when I translate the Bible, I plop down either my Hebrew Old Testament or my Greek New Testament, uh, and I carefully work through these languages. I usually have a stack of grammars or lexicons uh, uh, right next to me to help look up words and understand the grammar of the passages I'm reading and so forth, and I'm rendering it from this ancient language to this modern language. Uh, Joseph Smith did not do that with uh, his translation of the Bible. Uh, rather, what he did was, um, well, at first, he would uh, read through the biblical uh, passages and dictated to a scribe, uh, making changes or revisions to the text uh, as they were going along. Um, so that's why you hear many people sometimes call it a revision rather than a translation. We don't have to get into that necessarily right here, but this is just to say you'll sometimes hear people refer to it as a revision because he's not translating it the way that you and I perhaps think of it. Um, eventually, however, Joseph Smith realizes, it seems he realizes that it would take way too long to literally recopy out the whole Bible, which is what they started out doing. And so he turned to his own King James Bible that he had on hand. And uh, with the assistance of his clerks, he actually went through and just made uh, annotations to the the Bible itself, indicating passages that were that were meant to be changed or revised. So the whole time, Joseph Smith is working with the English text of the King James Bible. Uh, now you ask Ryan, you know, was he receiving some kind of visionary uh, or, or, you know, oracular uh, input, right? Was he seeing images of, of these things going on uh, as a seer would? That's a great question. I wouldn't necessarily rule it out, especially for texts like Moses chapter one, which remember in the manuscript is called a revelation to Joseph the seer, June 1830 or whatever, right? Um, so it very well could be that portions of the JST, especially the early portions with Moses and so forth, that those may have been visionary uh, experiences that Joseph Smith had that he then 
uh, commits to paper as part of this larger project. He kind of uh, you know subsumes it under the Bible revision project he has going on. Uh, that's a that's a very real possibility. Um, it seems to our current knowledge from the evidence we have that he was not using the seer stone or the Yerman Thummim in the translation of the Bible. Uh, rather, as I said, he was making revisions to the, the English text of the Bible. Um, and so when you're approaching the JST, you have to be careful because it's not just one thing. Uh, it, there's different categories of changes that Joseph Smith is making. Some of the changes um, are uh, prophetic expansions to the text, stuff that was never in there to begin with that he's adding into the story. Some of the changes, he's harmonizing uh, contradictions that he's encountering, or he's trying to make sense of, uh, you know, conflicting passages, so he's harmonizing texts. Um, some of the changes are just kind of common sense changes that, you know, that he wants to sort of clarify. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, word for word, the biggest change Joseph Smith makes is um, he updates the language. So uh, today we kind of rightly get annoyed with some of the V's and the thou's and things like that, some of the archaic King James language. Well, it seems Joseph Smith had a hard time with that too, uh, in some sense, because a lot of what the changes are is, is revising and modernizing the language. So you have to take it kind of passage by passage to see what kind of a change is this? How do we you know, categorize it? And we can't always be sure, um, but this is to say, it's not just one simple thing. Um, it's kind of this uh, hybrid uh, project of different things going on here, but I would have, I, I would not at all rule out the possibility that in the process of making these revisions to the Bible, he was receiving revelatory or seeric uh, experiences about the biblical figures and biblical events that he's encountering that uh, influenced how he quote unquote translated uh, the text. I think that's a great explanation. Thank you for sharing that. Um. I guess the, the next thing I kind of wanted to ask about, and this is something that I don't I don't know that much about at all, but I've, in passing, I've heard, so Joseph Smith, yeah, he helped put forth the book of Moses, book of Abraham, but I've also briefly heard of a book of Enoch that he helped put together. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book of Enoch is and then as well as why we don't have it? All right, so, so that's a great question too. Um, so when you talk about what is the book of Enoch, you you have to, to and I'm not saying this to you specifically, Ryan, not to call you out or anything by any means, but rather just to say in general, when people talk about the book of Enoch, uh, there's actually multiple books of Enoch floating uh, around there. Uh, when most people talk about the book of Enoch, what they're talking about is a book that scholars today designate first Enoch. Um, I, it's too bad that your listeners can't see the book I have right here, but uh, I have a, a handy copy of this text called First Enoch, translated by uh, George Nicholsburg and James Vanderkam. Uh, I highly recommend it. You can pick it up on Amazon for like 10 bucks. It's, it's not very expensive. It's from the, the Hermeneia translation series. Uh, and they provide, it's a very accessible translation and uh, provide some commentary on what this text is. So um, the book of, just to roughly give a, uh, an introduction to this book for your readers, or sorry, for your listeners, uh, First Enoch is an ancient pseudepigraphical and apocryphal book dating from about the fourth century BC to the first century BC. Now, let me unpack that a little bit because I know some people probably, you know, their eyes are glazing over when they hear these terms. So uh, pseudepigrapha is a category of ancient writings that biblical scholars use to designate texts which have been um, falsely attributed to certain figures. That's where the word uh, pseudo meaning false and graphia meaning written or writing. So a uh, pseudepigrapha 
uh, is a falsely attributed writing uh, to, to a figure. In this instance, the writing is attributed to the figure Enoch from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, right? Um, so uh, I'll also mention some scholars today like to avoid that terminology pseudepigrapha because it does sort of have a pejorative sense to it, right? Oh, these are false writings. Uh, it can kind of mislead you into, into giving it uh, unnecessarily negative connotation. So others will, will describe it as maybe a, a parabiblical text, meaning it's, a, it's, it's not in our Bible, at least not in our Protestant Bible, um, but it's sort of Bible-ish or you know, Bible-like. Uh, and certainly it comes from the biblical world. It was produced during the biblical period by, uh, by biblical believing Jews. Uh, so they'll call it a parabiblical text. Others will call it uh, an apocryphal text very broadly. Um, uh, but, but basically, so, so hopefully that kind of makes sense of this terminology pseudepigrapha. Now, it's also an apocalyptic text, meaning it is a text that uh, purports to give revelations about the uh, the fate of humanity and the fate of the world at the end of days. Um, and so basically the structure of the book of Enoch is these individual uh, sort of sub books within it, um, just going through the, the, uh, the Nicholsburg and Vanderkam uh, translation I have now, uh, you have, for example, the book of watchers, the book of parables, the book of luminaries, the epistle of Enoch, the dream visions that should get people's uh, pique their curiosity, Enoch having dream visions. But basically, these are um, a collection of writings that were assumed and attributed to the figure Enoch, which give apocalyptic or revelatory, think of like the book of Revelation, right? The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant John. So these are a series of visions that are given to the figure Enoch about the end of the world, the fate of humanity, ultimate judgment, um, and, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, that are uh, prophetic in a sense that they are predicting what's going to happen in the in the end days. Again, talking about eschatology, I mentioned with Joseph Smith Matthew, uh, the Book of Enoch is an eschatological work, meaning it it gives uh, a, a picture of what things will look like at the end of days. Um, so so that's roughly the content of it. So so it's a pseudepigraphical attributed to Enoch, apocalyptic, revelatory book. It was composed, uh, it seems, uh, between the fourth or first centuries BC. Uh, it seems to have originally been written in, written in the Aramaic language. Um, we have Aramaic fragments of it that survive uh, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. We also have Greek and Latin fragments uh, from centuries later. Um, but uh, the fullest copy of this Book of Enoch was, uh, or first Enoch was preserved um, in Ethiopic or Giz. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's a language, a liturgical language that's used by uh, Ethiopian Jews and Ethiopian Christians, the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Christian Church, uh, which actually does accept the first book of the first book of Enoch uh, as scripture. Uh, so it was preserved in later manuscripts such as uh, classical Ethiopic, and then later transmitted and translated into English uh, in the like the 18th and 19th centuries, um, right around the time of Joseph Smith, as a matter of fact. Um, now, the reason why this book is important, and I'll, I'll wrap things up here quickly because I don't want to bore our listeners too much, but the reason why the Book of Enoch is important is because um, it seems that the apocalyptic worldview of the Book of Enoch uh, was highly influential at the time of Jesus. So the sort of Judaism that was practiced by Jesus and his contemporaries um, that was very apocalyptic, was very concerned with the end of the world and things of that nature, um, it seems that Enoch, the, the first book of Enoch was a major 
sort of catalyst behind this worldview, or certainly it contributed significantly to this worldview. And so if you want to understand um, the Judaism practiced in, and believed in Jesus' day by, by a significant amount of Jesus' contemporaries, including Jesus himself, you need to uh, read these texts like First Enoch to better understand it. Okay, so that's from, that's from sort of the, the non-LDS perspective. The reason why Latter-day Saints are interested in the Book of Enoch is because we have our own Book of Enoch in the Book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. So Moses chapter 6 and chapter 7 uh, gives a very detailed description of this figure Enoch and his ministry, right? Including a series of revelations that he has. He has a theophany of God. Uh, he sees the end of the world. He sees the judgment and things like that, right? Uh, and so Latter-day Saints have been very interested in uh, First Enoch and other texts. I, I should mention that this wasn't the only Enochic text. There were other sort of spin-off texts that were also composed uh, uh, both during and well after the time of Jesus, uh, but this is the main one. Latter-day Saints are interested in this because they want to see does first Enoch or any of these Enoch texts, do they align with what Joseph Smith restores in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price? Are there any parallels? Are there convergences? Uh, and if so, what does that mean about either the inspiration or the antiquity of Joseph Smith's book of Enoch uh, in the Pearl of Great Price, right? So uh, Hugh Nibley, again, he, he led the way in this sort of scholarship and more recently, uh, Jeffrey Bradshaw and uh, David Larson, one of my former colleagues at Book of Mormon Central, have also published on this. Uh, I, I recommend their writings, which you can find mostly online. Um, they've really sort of broken down what are the parallels with the, the non-LDS Book of Enoch uh, that was translated by secular scholars, and what is uh, the LDS Book of Enoch that Joseph Smith translates in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, and I'll just say uh, very briefly, Ryan, uh, that there are some rather significant parallels between the two, um, uh, enough so that uh, it raises serious questions about what this, what the implications are for for Joseph Smith's Book of Enoch. Uh, if you are if you're a non Latter Day Saint scholar, and there are some out there, uh, then your answer is well, Joseph Smith must have had a, a access to a copy of a of a European English translation of Book of First Enoch, right? Um, well, that can only get you so far because some of the parallels are, are not with the Book of First Enoch, but with, with other Enoch fragments or Enoch texts. Um, it, of course, if you're a Latter-day Saint, uh, a believing Latter-day Saint such as ourselves, uh, then the answer is, is very obvious that uh, Joseph Smith was uh, actually tapping into and restoring authentic ancient concepts that were otherwise uh, forgotten or neglected over the centuries that he uh, restored and put back into sort of their, their proper uh, framing or context through his uh, restoration teaching. So, uh, sorry again to sort of filibuster on it. That's, uh, but but that's just kind of a, a surface level look at what the Book of Enoch is. Um, like I said, I, I highly recommend your listeners check out the the edition prepared by Nicholsberg and Vanderkam, published by uh, Hermenea. Like I said, it's like ten bucks on Amazon or something. At least it was when I got my copy. Uh, that's a pretty accessible way to sort of jump into this. And then if you want to get really into it, uh, definitely uh, check out the writings of Hugh Nibley, um, but also more recently Jeffrey Bradshaw uh, and David Larson, among others. Uh, you can you can find a, a nice cornucopia of Latter-day Saint scholarship on the Book of Enoch. Surprise, surprise, Latter-day Saints are super interested in these long lost books that never made it into the Bible. You know, we, we just eat this stuff up, right? So there's no shortage of, of fun that you can have with that body of scholarship as well. That's awesome. Great response. And I'll make sure to um, mention these different books that Stephen mentioned in the description. So if our, if our audience want to look deeper into that, they can be able to easily find those things. 
if I can plug one more thing, Ryan, to very, very yeah, shamelessly. Go ahead. Um, I, I want to plug a website called Pearl of Great Price Central. It's a spinoff project from Book of Mormon Central, um, which uh, has a, a repository of, of a lot of this LDS Enoch scholarship that's very accessible and it's all for free. So if you go to pearlgreatpricecentral.org uh, and you navigate the site, you'll find uh, both um, articles and, uh, and I think some podcasts or whatever um, about this Enoch material, but you'll also find some bibliographies. So you can really, you know, just eat your heart out with this Enoch stuff. So that might be a good sort of starting place for your listeners, uh, especially your LDS listeners who may not be familiar with this, go to pearlgreatpricecentral.org and that will, might be a good sort of launching pad to get you into this whole wonderful world of Enoch scholarship. That's awesome. I love that. So yeah, make sure to go look into those things. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you specifically about the Pearl of Great Price is what are some of your favorite um, like doctrines and things that we learn from the Pearl? Well, that's, that, that's a good question, a good question to end on. And uh, I promise I won't take too much time because... No, go ahead. You, you can have an awesome response. So let's keep it going. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I, I mean, but there's so much you can talk about, right? I mean, uh, Terrell Givens has, has a new book. Uh, well, it came out a couple of years ago through Oxford University Press called The Pearl of Greatest Price. Uh, I think the, sub, the subtitle is Mormonism's Most Controversial Scripture, a nice uh, uh, attention-grabbing book title for you there. Uh, but Terrell Gibbons does a really good job of sort of breaking down a lot of the doctrinal contributions that the Pearl of Great Price gives to the Restoration and to Joseph Smith's uh, teachings. And um, I, I have to agree with Gibbons that uh, probably one of the central teachings that the Pearl of Great Price gives us is uh, what we now today sort of call the plan of salvation, right? Uh, but that you can, you can sort of see as man's place in the cosmos, uh, so uh, the Pearl of Great Price in both the Book of Moses and in the Book of Abraham have explicit mention of the pre-mortal existence, right? Uh, and what's significant is that the Book of Abraham especially makes it clear that this pre-mortal existence wasn't just for God and for Jesus and for Satan as it is in the Book of Moses. It was for everybody. There were uh, innumerable intelligences or spirits that were organized before the world was, uh, and subsequent teachings from Latter-day Prophets says that we were a part of this, right? Uh, we know that the plan was presented, and there was this controversy over uh, whether, you know, whose plan would be accepted, and what what's the role of agency, and the, you know, the, and the fall of Lucifer, and, and these sorts of things. Um, the, the underpinning for the Latter-day Saint concept of the pre-existence, and how we sort of fit that in the bigger puzzle of the plan of salvation, is most explicit in the Pearl of Great Price. So for my money, if I have to list at least one thing that's most significant about the Pearl of Great Price, and also my personally most favorite thing, it would be situating uh, humanity in this divine cosmic order. It doesn't just start at birth. It's also not ex nihilo, right? Uh, Book of Abraham makes it clear that God creates through organizing unorganized matter and things like that. Uh, this is this teaching is really significant uh, uh, in that regard. Another aspect that's uh, hugely significant, I think, uh, and this is also something that Terrell Givens um, has touched on rather uh, rather frequently in his writings, um, is um, I'm just pulling it up here in uh, Moses chapter seven, starting in verse 23. You have Enoch's vision of the weeping God. Uh, this is where where. Uh, God sees, or I'm sorry, uh, M M Enoch sees God in vision, uh, 
uh, and God is reacting to just the abject wickedness and horrible fallen state of mankind, of humanity, and he begins to weep. And Enoch is astonished. And he says, how is it that the heavens can weep and shed forth their tears as rain upon the mountains, right? Uh, and then Enoch specifically says, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing as thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity? Uh, Terrell Givens has pointed out that like um, this idea of God being, he's not immutable, he's not impassable as classical Christian teaching would, would have us believe that God is very much in a very real sense responding to uh, humanity and their condition. This divine anthropomorphism, meaning God has these human uh, characteristics, right? Um, it, it's, it's radical uh, and it's in some ways shocking to the theological world of, of Orthodox Christianity, right? To suggest that God could be this uh, uh, passable. So uh, that also I think stands out. Uh, and I think Terrell Givens and others uh, have, have rightly pointed that out as a very significant contribution that the Pro of Great Price gives to our uh, understanding. Uh, so the nature of God, that's a big one. Uh, the last one I'll, I'll end on, I mentioned the Joseph Smith history uh, that was first composed in 1838. Joseph Smith's, it's commonly called the 1838 history. Um, I think that that's hugely significant uh, because this is, as I mentioned, this is our fullest firsthand account from Joseph Smith of his first vision, of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, of the restoration of the priesthood. Um, it wasn't the only time Joseph Smith gave a firsthand account of these events, but it's this is sort of the moment when he took the most care and effort to sort of set the record straight. And if you go back and if you read the opening verses of Joseph Smith history, you'll see what I mean, because Joseph Smith basically says, I'm fed up with all the false reports and, and false claims about me in this church that are circulating out there. So I'm going to set the record straight here and now, right? Uh, and so he gives us his account. So, um, uh, I mean, it goes without saying that when, when Latter-day Saints first learn about the first vision and what that means for us, they're learning it from the Pearl of Great Price, right? They're learning it from Joseph Smith history. Um, for many Latter-day Saints, that may be the only account of the first vision that they're aware of uh, is the one in the Pearl Great Price. So uh, I, would, I would point to, to that as well as another hugely significant uh, teaching that the Pearl Great Price gives us is Joseph Smith's foundational early experiences and the sort of the story of the restoration and what the meaning of that story is for us. We also get that in the Pearl Great Price. Great response. I think those are some very beautiful things. I, I too love that idea that we have a God that a God that weeps, a God that has empathy for the hard things that happen to us, um, and that cares about our different decisions and such. Um, so I want to just close with just two questions before we end. Um, one of those just being if you have just any just brief advice for people that are currently in a faith crisis, and then I'll just end by asking, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? Thank you for those questions. Uh, I, th I think they're very apt. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep my response very brief. So when, when we hear about people having a faith crisis over the Pro of Great Price, Probably most of the time, I would imagine it's specifically because of the book of Abraham. There's a considerable controversy uh, with the, the origin and the nature of the translation of the book of Abraham. Uh, there's considerable question about uh, what is the relationship between the English text of the book of Abraham and the Egyptian papyri fragments uh, that the church has currently in its possession. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot that I, that I could say about that uh, since this has been written on and discussed for literally decades. 
But I think just for now, um, one thing I would do is I would urge patience uh, and I would urge caution with those who uh, are experiencing a faith crisis. And, and here's the reason why. With something like the Book of Abraham, but it also might be other issues with the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, so for example, it might be with the Joseph Smith history with the first vision accounts, right? We know that he gave multiple accounts. Uh, maybe some people have questions about how Joseph Smith produced the, the, the JST, his translation of the Bible. There have been some recent uh, controversy around that, but whatever it might be, uh, I would urge patience and caution. The reason for that being is that um, when you encounter certain claims, most likely on the internet, I'm, I imagine, or in different podcasts, um, you're going to hear a very simple, um, but also simply misleading narrative about the controversy surrounding these books. Uh, you're typically going to get a very one-sided picture of what the situation is like. Um, it's going to be a picture that's not very charitable towards Joseph Smith, uh, and it's going to be a narrative that is going to encourage you to abandon your faith. The reason why I would urge you not to do that is because as you dig deeper into these issues for each of the books in the Pearl of Great Price, uh, you soon find out that the, uh, we'll call it the skeptical narrative or the negative uh, faith-doubting narrative, we'll call it, you, you quickly discover that it leaves a lot out. There are a lot of details and a lot of information that it's not including or that it's uh, glossing over. Um, I, I don't say this to brag in any sense, but uh, I have now studied, uh, especially the Book of Abraham, for almost two decades now, very intensely. Like I said, since I was an early teenager, right, uh, I've been intensely studying these things, including at the academic level, and I've uh, published uh, academic treatments on these subjects. Um, and I can tell you from my experience that as you look more carefully at these texts, the more remarkable they become and the stronger they uh, become uh, as, as evidence for Joseph Smith's prophetic calling. Um, so that's what I mean when I say that you should have caution and patience as you first encounter a faith crisis over these things. Now, I don't want to make this, I don't want to make this sound like I'm cheapening your experience, right? I'm not saying that, that your initial sense of panic or dis, uh, uh, um, of discomfort uh, isn't real. It, it very much is. But what I'm saying is rather than just sort of like freaking out, you know, after you initially encounter this information, take a step back and take, take a breather and see what very competent and faithful Latter-day Saint scholars for decades have been saying about these issues uh, that I believe will ultimately strengthen your faith. Uh, it has mine, certainly. Um, so, so that's uh, one thing I would say. And related to that, uh, I would encourage listeners going through a faith crisis to make sure that they are getting the best, most accurate information about the Pearl of Great Price and the individual books in the Pearl of Great Price. This kind of goes along with, with my first point. Um, but uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is with the internet, uh, it's really difficult to put on filters or quality control for the information that you're consuming. Uh, and I would urge listeners who may be experiencing a faith crisis to seek out the best information about the Pearl of Great Price and the individual books and all the issues surrounding them uh, as they uh, seek to form their opinions. So I, I hope that makes sense. Uh, I hope, you know, I wasn't rambling too much there, uh, but, you know, of all the advice that I, that I, would, I would give our listeners now, I think that would be uh, the main one when it comes to, um, you know, having a faith crisis over the Pearl of Great Price. Take a step back, take a deep breath, 
be a little patient and calm and let's let's work through these issues uh you know constructively and let's not sort of lose our minds over it and then i think your second question was um about what does the gospel mean to me is that right is that is that what it was yeah well i mean honestly uh, uh, the gospel of jesus christ means everything to me i mean uh almost practically literally in every single decision I've made in my life down to where I want to go to school, what I want to do for, uh, for an occupation or a profession, um, has all been influenced by that, uh, abiding testimony I have of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, because I believe these books of scripture are inspired and because I believe they are what they say they are, uh, that they are, uh, ancient texts that have been revealed or translated by, by Joseph Smith. Um, I want to understand them as best I can. And because of that, I want to go in part, I want to go into academic fields that will help me understand them the best I can. Uh, and so th the gospel has, has pushed me in that direction because of, uh, because of my testimony in it. I would also say that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, as revealed in, for example, the Pearl of Great Price, uh, I mean, it gives me a, a broader eternal cosmic sense of what my place is here, right? We were talking about this earlier, right? Uh, you know, I didn't just poof out of ex nihilo out of nowhere and suddenly I'm here, right? I had an existence with God before this life and there is existence after this life. Uh, and there are specific things that I am obliged to do in this life to uh, to ensure that I can return to God's presence. And so understanding that and having a testimony of that uh, has meant all the world to me and has influenced uh, the choices I've, I've made in my life and uh, who I want to be, or at least who I am trying to be uh, uh, as, a, as a human being. So I hope, I hope that kind of makes sense. Uh, again, I hope I'm not kind of rambling here, but uh, yeah, the, the Pearl of Great Price has been foundational in helping me understand uh, my position, my sort of my, my place in the world, my identity as, as a child of God, and ultimately what hopefully, uh, what, what my ultimate outcome will be uh, if, if I am able to uh, follow and keep these precepts. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. You've had so many great things to say, and we really appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. I've had a great time having this chat with you. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.